Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, Hello, everyone. Um, We're going to go ahead and get started, if those of you in the back don't mind sort of taking your seats. Um, it's, I'm uh, Dr. James Flexner, I'm in the archaeology uh, department here. It's my great pleasure to uh, introduce an event which is part of National Archaeology Week, New South Wales, which has uh, this year 31 different events around the state um, relating to uh, kind of increasing awareness of archaeology and heritage in Australia. So we have a particularly exciting uh, event Um, this evening, uh, which is going to be about kind of the current state of the art in uh, indigenous archaeology in Australia. Um, If you are a a tweeter, um, you can use the tag at Sydney underscore ideas, uh, and there's a Wi-Fi connection available for the event if people want it. Okay. Um, So I'm going to introduce the event. Uh, We have our two wonderful speakers, uh, Peter Hiscock and David Johnson, uh, and the facilitator, uh, which is gonna be for the kind of Q&A style that we're using for the event, going kind of back and forth with questions for each of our speakers, uh, is going to be Rob Williams, who is a PhD student in the department. As always, we start by acknowledging and paying our respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose lands we meet. Uh, We acknowledge and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders and knowledge keepers, past, present, and future, uh, as we come together to share knowledge and ideas, recognizing that the country on which we stand has long been a place of learning. Um, We're very lucky tonight to have two extremely distinguished archaeologists of Aboriginal Australia. Um, Dave Johnston is the first academically qualified Aboriginal archaeologist who holds an honors degree from the ANU uh, and a master's from University College London. Um, He is an Aboriginal man and a founding member of the Australian Indigenous Archaeologists Association, uh, has been instrumental in drafting and implementing various codes of ethics Uh, and ethical guidelines for collaborative research with indigenous peoples for the Australian Archaeological Association, the World Archaeological Congress, uh, and various institutions within state and commonwealth government. Um, Dave has been involved in archaeology for quite a long time. Uh, As a consulting archaeologist, he's worked on more than 2,000 projects right across eastern Australia from uh, Cape York to uh, Point Nepean which we practice today, and I hope I mostly got right. (laughs) And in 2014, Dave was awarded the Sharon Sullivan National Heritage Award for his outstanding contribution to uh, indigenous heritage and his ongoing uh, influence on practice. Uh, Dave, excitingly, is also going to be co-presenter on Coast Australia Season 4 with Neil Oliver and Tim Flannery, uh, which will air in January 2020 to an audience of approximately 2.5 million people. So that is a very broad reach for archaeology. 
Peter Hiscock is the Tom Austin Brown Professor of Australian Archaeology here at the University of Sydney. He holds an advanced doctorate at DSC from the University of Queensland. Uh, his research explores a number of areas, including uh, studying the human occupation of Australia prior to European settlement, uh, characterizing patterns of technological evolution, and exploring the implications of those patterns for the cultural evolution of hominids, uh, and interestingly, reading the representations of archaeologists in movies, and I'm sure there are a few students here who have taken Peter's archaeology and film class before. Uh, Peter is the author of dozens of highly cited research articles in scientific journals, uh, and he's the author of the um, Archaeology of Ancient Australia, which won the John Mulvaney Book Award in 2008. Uh, he's a fellow of the Australian Academy of Humanities and the Royal Society of Antiquaries in London. So we have two very, as I said, accomplished, impressive, engaging speakers, uh, and I hope that everyone really enjoys it. Please join me in welcoming Dave and Peter. Uh, thank you, James, for the introduction. I've got the easy job of just asking the questions. And we're going to do it on a sort of alternating uh, format. And the first question is for Peter. Um, just mindful that you have around three to four minutes to respond, and I'll be very strict in keeping time. I won't really. Okay. So Peter, your title is Professor of Australian Archaeology. So you must have some views on what makes Australian archaeology so interesting and important. Yeah, look, thank, thanks for the, for the question. And, and you know, I, I guess I do have some views on this. The, the role of archaeology, as I see it, is to chart the course of human evolution globally. Australian archaeology examines the human evolution within Australia. Now, the, the significance of that is, is um, several fold. The, the first is that, that as one of the five continents, that means that Australian archaeology is, is essentially responsible for describing a significant portion of the, the evolutionary variety that, that has, has emerged. We, have, you know, we, we control exploration of a, a significant portion of, of the globe's human history. And uh, the, the movement of people out of Africa, across the old world, to Australia, marks the emergence of a great deal of cultural diversity. So much of the diversity that we see in human um, social practices in the recent past uh, stem from the, the adaptation, the, the the con to, to different circumstances, the contingency. And we see that uh, within Australia as well. So one of the things that we... we can we get, get the next yep. slide now? So we have a vision of humans within Australia arriving early. The date for the settlement of Australia is now 60 to 70,000 years ago, and we're, we're quite confident about that. And people colonise all niches of Australia. Uh, comparatively ra rapidly, the, the evidence suggests, and they then undergo cultural change fairly consistently. So there's ongoing adaptation, ongoing cultural evolution within Australia for 60,000 years. And part of the um, consequence of that is the emergence of different uh, social lives, of different economic habits, uh, of, of different cosmologies. And, and so we can see this very clearly as we look around the continent, the, the, 
Ice Age continent of Australia and the, the northern part, which is now cut off by sea level rise and we call New Guinea, um, evolved uh, intensive agricultural systems. Australia went down a different evolutionary tra trajectory and focused on uh, you know, uh, uh, elaborate and interesting strategies for, for foraging, for hunting and collecting. Uh, we also see different, um, dif different social institutions emerging uh, in, these, in these areas. So academically, Australia is a really nice case study for exploring the evolutionary patterns that occur, the trajectories that emerge, and uh, showing different trajectories within Australia, and the ones within our continent are different to elsewhere in the world. And, and the final thing I would say about the significance of Australian archaeology is it provides a, a balance but also a challenge to the way we view Indigenous histories. Um, because a lot of anthropological work has, has been quite functionalist in nature and, and you know, I'm always in awe of the, the constructions that have been developed. Uh, they, they really are stunning in the way they reveal the articulation of different um, modules or, or institutions to, to each other in, in the, the lives of people who lived here. But those, but those functionalist constructions are um, mostly about the, the operation of the system, not about the evolution of the system. And the hints of evolution have been comparatively um, minimal. So one of the things that Australian archaeology has been able to contribute is to add a chronology um, to understand the, the emergence, the way in which these, um, the, these cultural systems and the lives of the people that led them have changed through time. So Australian archaeology is significant on a global level and it's significant on a, on a local level. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, Dave. Um, so how did you become interested in archaeology and what do you... Um, see special about researching archaeology in Australia. Thanks, Rob. Um, well, firstly, folks, thank you for coming, and I'd, I'd just like to pay my respect to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, past and present, firstly. Wonderful to be here, and my colleague Peter, who I've known on and off for 30-something oh, years. Um, so, if I guess from my beginnings, I, I was... I'm one of the last of the sort of the well, well, taken away kids, and I was adopted out in North Queensland in the 60s. And my father became a lighthouse keeper. I had two non-Indigenous folks, and they adopted five Aboriginal kids from all over Queensland. Um, Mum was a teacher in the 50s and wore a binder of Palm Island and a lot of the, the missions up there. So I had this wonderful family. And one time I was interested being on lighthouses. I was sort of trapped in this little environment, just playing with my brothers, and interested in history and exploring and. I came back in my cowboy outfit one day when I was about 11. Mum was a teacher, English teacher, and um, said, oh, maybe... And I said, I'd been digging up in the caves or exploring. And she um, said, maybe you want to be an archaeologist. And I said, oh, what's that? Being a good English teacher, she said, why don't you look it up in the encyclopaedia? So I <laughs> went over, dusted off our 1958 Encyclopaedia Britannica, read this this article about what archaeology was. I said, that's what I want to do. So I put my cowboy outfit away and... And I haven't looked back. I don't know what else I could really do. That was my interest, but uh, how I became uh, interested in archaeology and I was able to go to ANU and, and do my, my honours and later on my master's at London. 
For me, I've had some wonderful um, influences or mentors in my life. I was from Queensland. I came up, ended up down here. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge these wonderful people um, who've made me who I am and, and, and spouse those views and take on those energies. One is my great professor I saw yesterday afternoon, Isabel McBride, who was I is the champion, I would say, of Australian archaeology in so far that she liaised with the Aboriginal communities and they told her, you can't do this work without us. She took that on board with the, um, the three elders out at Lake Mungo, the four, Tibby Briar, um, Alice Kelly and all those old girls who I've had the privilege of working with and their families out at Lake Mungo as the chairman of the Elders Council for a number of years. She took that on and said, yeah, okay. And so she single-handedly, a woman in, in archaeology, was a tough gig too at the time. We had the Mulvaney's, the Reese jones the Wolf. There was a, a, you know, it's a male set at the time. But she, she persevered as she did all throughout her career and influenced a number of uh, students. One was to consult with Aboriginal people about our heritage and values, give that respect, have mutual partnerships. Uh, but she influenced these wonderful students the Sharon Sullivan, who came through and went off and stepped up consultation in New South Wales, having the first Aboriginal Rangers, the whole programs that progressed from there. And that influence, and certainly I'll say that women in archaeology influenced that so there was large levels of consultation engagement, which caused a bit of a ruckus over the time of the 70s and 80s, but, you know, it was ethically, and I'd argue, still the right thing to do. So people like that, Dennis Byrne, talked about Indigenous social values, you know, these are important key things when we assess the significance of the site. The science is so important, and, and I'll, you'll hear this. There's no uh, argument about this. But there's also, I argue, ar archaeology is, is relevant to people. It's also about relationships. It's also about respect, particularly to our communities. So the great other mentors, Isabel McBride, there are many at my university, um, and I uh, pay tribute to them. Isabel, I saw, had coffee with her yesterday. Uh, she's in a home at 83 now. Uh, frail, but you know, my sh still our shining light for Indigenous peoples, and I'd say, you know, the future and, uh, of of an ethical archaeology. Sorry, Dave. Um, that's also your uh, fourth question, which is uh, who are some of your mentors in archaeology? Um, sorry, what we'll, did I um, there? I've got you confused. Sorry, but um, well, just as a second part of the question, and we'll ask, um, what do you see special about researching archaeology in Australia? Sorry, no, that's all right. I'll, very quick. Look, it's so unique. We we're still discovering it. This is what is exciting. We've, every, we've got new science techniques, new dating techniques, new technology we can use, residue analysis. It's continually engaging. You know, as Aboriginal people saying, you know, we have been here forever. Well, started off at 12,000, then 17, 21. But, well, and it's going, getting older. And we're going, yes, we know. We've been here, yes. But that is exciting. It does stamp our place, does reaffirm what we've been saying. But it's unique. It's diverse. There's the other side, exciting aspect of that is the, you know, the, the, well, the story of survival throughout this you know, you know, geological period of time, uh, adaptations to climate change, to you know, the whole physical change of, of our environment, you know, climate change within, our, um, within the Australian landscape over time, density changes, but it also comes up to the modern era of, you know, of, of surviving within your own communities, uh, not crossbreeding, having trade routes, knowing your country, and it overlaps into modern times as well, surviving in, you know, in the European context, out missions, we have contemporary archaeologies. But today, as a modern Australians who have a connection to their country, and, it, we, and one thing you've been, I say, one of the exciting things is, Aboriginal people do not have a linear Western concept of time. 
with contemporaneous, what is something today, the trauma of stolen gens is as relevant today, as is our obligations, whether it's 50, 60, and it's irrelevant how old our burials and sites are, have a contemporary custodianship role and obligation to those important places and sites, particularly burials, old people in their country. It's unique and we're just touching the surface, Pete, I think as well. Thank you. So Peter, you were originally a student of John Mulvaney. Since his death, there's been much discussion of his foundational role in building Australian archaeology. What is your view of his work and the direction um, taken by scholars in the early decades of the discipline? Um, look, John, John is a remarkable scholar and the, the professor before Isabel yeah. at, at ANU. Um, and uh, he, he taught me in first year so I encountered him early, and I, and I, at the time, appreciated the, the footprint that he had on the department. He was a powerful character. Now, the interesting, the interesting thing is that, um, you know, I, I've come to appreciate John's workload and his ability to have a vision about, about the, the human past in Australia, but also to establish an Indigenous, uh, you know, an archaeology of Indigenous Australia. Um, but I also think, and, and this is the story that I want to tell, is that, is that John, um, in, in his scholarly way, misdirected the, the way in which archaeology could be robust, robustly done. And it's, it's a really kind of curious and interesting story. So if you go back to the 1960s, the early 1960s, there's virtually no archaeological data. Um, radiocarbon dating started in I think, 1957 was about the first... 55 was the first date, Edmund, Edmund Gill in Victoria. And uh, John was writing these papers, theorising about uh, the evidence that we had and how we would go about writing a, a human history on, on the basis of it. And he, he made the point that, unlike Europe, which is where he'd been trained, he went to Cambridge University after the war, um, uh, unlike Europe, Australia had this wealth of ethnographic, historical information about how Aboriginals lived. And he saw that as something that should be exploited, but he also saw a danger in it. And he, he, he talk, certainly talked about, in his uh, papers in, in 1961, he talked about you know, ha how biased a lot of those recordings were. They were often you know, Christian white men of, of, of great age, you know, look, looking at social systems they didn't completely understand. So, so you know, you had, to under, you had to filter through the records that were being made. But he also made the point that if we wrote the story of people in Australia based on the ethnographic information from the 19th and 20th century, we, we ran the danger of depicting not the nature of the societies in the past, but the nature of those historical societies. If, we, if, we, if all we did was, was impose that historical um, uh, behaviour on, on ancient people, we wouldn't, we wouldn't really be portraying the nature of those early societies. We'd just be portraying the nature of historic societies. And he called this... Uh, uh, a static representation, um, meaning, and, and you have to remember that he was dealing with um, the legacy of, of people like Rad Radcliffe Brown and the, the vision that there was no history to Aboriginal people in Australia. So he, he wanted to fight that static vision. 
and that was very influential on me. Uh, you know, when I sat in first year and, and, I, and I read uh, his, his work. And, and uh, if any of you uh, read my, my textbook, Archaeology of Ancient Australia, that's the first chapter. The first chapter is about how we must we must understand this ethnography, but we mustn't impose it on on the ancient past. But the irony is that that. Uh, a few years later, by 1969, John was in a position where he could uh, synthesise the information that he had and write a textbook. Can we have the, in the next slide? I think yep. you've got a, a shot of the, the book. Yep. <coughs> and look, it's a great book. You know, the man wrote uh, a prehistory of Australia based on you know, a, a, a sniff of an oily rag. There's almost no evidence out there and he put it together in really creative ways. But what he, what he did to solve the lack of evidence was that he wrote it backwards. So the book begins with the ethnographic uh, story, the, the evidence from the historic period, and, and is then written backwards. And um, creative though it was, what it, what it led to was um, a story in which the, the kind of ethnographic colour and the understanding that come, came from um, uh, early, early observers and, and, and later anthropologists of how Aboriginal societies and technologies and economies worked was, was you know, imbued into a lot of the archaeological interpretation. So for me, and uh, you know, this was the second edition of this book was produced as a, as a penguin book and it was widely read, it was highly influential, that was 1975. And so for me, one of the, one of the things <coughs> that happened is that John identified uh, one, one of my key concerns, which is you know, how, do we, how do we represent humans in each period of time that we describe in, in an accurate and, and fair way? Um, you know, fair in terms of representing their characteristics rather than uh, someone else's characteristics. So, I mean, you know, my concern is that we wouldn't really write the history of Rome um, as though they were modern Italians. Uh, we, we would want to describe the, the very nature of the difference between ancient Romans and modern Italians, and that that's actually a really interesting difference to be explored. And, uh, you know, my, my point in this story is that John's solution ended up falling into the same trap that he, that he was aware of, that he, he led people to um, not just be aware of the ethnography, but often to uh, you know, bring it in at, at the wrong point in the in the construction of the argument, and to and to uh, impose it in ways which I, which I you know I find uh, pro problematic. So um, you know John's John's history is kind of you know pioneering, but also for me in retrospect you know quite quite kind of problematic. I mean you know I, I think he was a great scholar, but in the end you know we went in a direction that, that I wasn't comfortable with. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story, and I think that the Mulvaney story has yet to be told. We've had, you know, it's been a year and a half since he died, and we've had all the homages, understandably, and with good reason. But, but you know, scholars will work through and, and understand the, 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 the complexities of his contribution. Fantastic, thank you. So Dave, uh, who were some of your mentors as a young archaeologist, and uh, how do you see your role as an Aboriginal um, archaeologist and, and academic? Thanks, Robbie. Well, I've about half answered that one. My, I'd like to also mention my other great mentors as a young Indigenous archaeologist coming through. You know, I was thrown into the role in a, at the Australian Heritage Commission, which John Mulvaney helped us set up. I, I, I would like to pay my uh, um, 
um, regards and acknowledgements to John Mulvaney too. Perhaps in a reverse way, but um, it, because I saw uh, this old side of school, but what he actually did also for in terms of setting up the Australian Heritage Commission, which looked at Indigenous values, which looked and had it fairly assessed. And he lamented when the, the Howard government abolished that and he, he stood up strong for, you know, the recognition and protection and management of significant Aboriginal sites. And he was there on a number of occasions and spoke up up until, you know, you know to his death. But, ab absolutely. So I salute the man and I salute him as, as the grandfather of a of the Australian archaeology. So absolutely great influence and I've glad to get to know him later years and really appreciate what he, he has, he did to for all of us. My other great mentors back on the community, I was grabbed at the Heritage Commission and I was sort of thrusted in national environment, liaising with communities, a bit of a green skin. I had these wonderful mentors who took me on a path after I'd come back to the second time and been sort of uh, fired up by being a government employee at this remote community. But I had these wonderful mentors Uncle Albert Mullet, who said, son, we're very proud you're our first Indigenous archaeologist, but whatever you do, don't come out smelling like the company Guna. Basically. So stick true to your, he says, family first, community, and his other one with in relation to our own people. Son, look after the needy, watch the greedy. So he was a champion in Victorian Aboriginal communities, elders, about Aboriginal, Aboriginal rights. Uh, more than that, family maintaining our cultural heritage and maintaining our voices. No better mob could do that than our Victorian uh, communities. So he was my, one of my great mentors. I had Kay Mundine, who's, um, who was down in Sydney, who was a human rights activist and lawyer, up and really took me under her wing to look after people country. See, they had these wonderful mentors. I had other elders around the place from Rob Zardy, uh, um, Matilda House, who as a 17-year-old took me in it up at Canberra. I took Robbie out on his first survey when he was seven. We had many great impulses from David Muljali, Paddy Rowe, um, Paul Samp in the NT, um, sorry, from Western Australia, Honey Caroline Briggs. I've had many, and I've, that's, as I came through, not working in my own country, years on, people would say, look, son, you're up here now working with us now. I've got 30-year relationships with a lot of these communities I've worked with now. And at some point, they said, now, we want you as the ARC to go up and speak. So I ended up taking the, the courage that they had instilled or taught me and some of the skills, um, to go and take on some of these challenges where we needed to do. So, very brief for the second part, so is mine. Um, so, how do you see your role as an Aboriginal person who holds academic college? Well, there's plenty of time for my academic side, I think. I, and I've taught at ANU, I've taught a field school out at Lake Mungo, but I've found myself very much in a, in a role of ensuring, by on the request of a number of communities, you know, the ethical direction of Australian archaeology, which is inclusive of including our people, to remind institutions. I've spent most of the time fighting mining companies, to be honest. I've taken 13 mining companies on over the years, which doesn't sort of um, contribute to a, you know, a great sort of employment with some of the, the key multinationals. But as the elder says, someone has to get up and bat for us when we need to. So I've sort of taken a, that role path, reminding institutions that you can't just go and appropriate our heritage across those boards, not just archaeology, history, heritage. We've got this new wave of indigenous genomics racing in without our consultations. So the sort of uh, ethical frameworks is something, and it's a background I've studied a lot, and also we, you know, we remind people studying our culture to, to bring us on as partners. You can do it with us, not without us. So I found myself in that boat. I'm going to hand that over then to Robbie and the younger ones, and I can get back into the, the science of archaeology, perhaps.
Fantastic. Thank you. So, Peter, in your view, what has been the greatest challenge in describing uh, human past in Australia? Um, I guess I've already mentioned it, which is, which is the, the danger with a landscape with a rich ethnography of not seeing the, the character of, of earlier ancestral societies. Um, and, and this is a classic case. I've, I've used this in my book. Other people have used it. So this is a, uh, a painting that was done. I actually quite like it as a painting. It's a painting of um, people, uh, an imagination of what Lake Mungo was like at 35,000. Um, and I think, you know, if you don't know anything about Australia, I guess it does give you a, a sense of it. But you see this guy down in the left-hand side, for instance, he's grinding an axe. Well, axes weren't at Lake Mungo for another 30,000 years. So this is, you know, the, the, the women have shell necklaces. Well, there are no shell necklaces in, the, in this area at that time period. They, they found on the far side of Western Australia at this time period. So this is one of those examples where it homogenises space, it homogenises culture so that Aboriginality just becomes this single thing and there's no, um, uh, th there's no recognition of the difference between the people that lived here at one point in time and the people that lived there at another point in time. And so that's what I want to avoid. And I, I wondered um, when uh, you know, James uh, pr prompted me to think about some questions, how I would illustrate, well, how, how would you go about this? So um, I've got a little case study to, to, to show you how, how we use um, images from the present with, uh, in, a, in a more positive way. So next slide. Yep. So <coughs> here are two maps of Australia. On the right-hand side, you can see the distribution of the, the, the largest language group. Um, so it's a, it's a language family. There are lots of um, members of that family, but the Pumanyungan is spread across uh, more than two-thirds of, of Australia. And the historical linguists uh, now have a good sense of how it has evolved. It, it, it emerged somewhere in the Gulf of Carpentaria, probably early in the Holocene, and, and has uh, spread out in different directions, in, in, down different pathways. Um, and uh, you know, re researchers, some of the genomics, hopefully one's done ethically, and, and, and the linguists are now working towards this. But on the left-hand side is a map of a particular kind of artefact that's found in the archaeological record, a thing called backed artefacts. And uh, the backed artefacts are interesting because they were not used in the historic period. They stopped being used a thousand years ago. So they're uh, a kind of behaviour for which there isn't a proxy in the ethnographic record, or not, at least not a, a, a direct one. And, and if you look at the two maps, I'm guessing, like me, you, you, you think they look rather similar. So uh, one way this story has been written is that backed artefacts... So this is the, the wrong way, I think. Backed artefacts are a, a material signal of the Pumanyungan language, and that um, Pumanyungan speakers somehow spread across the landscape, whether it was a mass migration or the language spread through trade networks. There are different models, but as it went, the backed artefacts, this kind of stone artefact, went with them, leaving a nice archaeological map, which is very convenient for us. But the problem is, we just don't know whether that story is reasonable or not. Did, did the backed artefacts spread first and Pumanyungan followed? Is it just coincidence? I mean, what is the relationship between these two, two things? So we need to um, uh, explore that rather than just impose the ethnography on it. 
So can we have the next slide? So, so I've actually got a current ARC project which is studying the backed artefacts across the whole of Australia in an attempt to see whether they show the same pattern of dispersion as the language family. And we do that independently. We're not doing it with the linguists. We're establishing whether or not the backed artefacts spread and how they spread, and then we'll compare it to the linguistic data. If they map onto each other, if the patterns of dispersion are the same, then there's a connection between Pamanyungan and backed artefacts. If they don't, then the story is more complex. Can we have the next slide? So that was just like a fancy 3D scanner. Um, and this is what they look like. They're tiny. They're like the little blades on a pen knife. They've got a blunted edge and a sharp edge. The sharp edge is across the bottom. And what we can do is put marks to designate the, the shape of them. We have the next slide. And then we can use some fancy statistics, which I'm terribly excited about, that we've, we've borrowed from, from evolutionary biology to um, show the different shapes. You know, they can be, they can be fat or thin. They can be, be flat or, or curved. So we can mark the different shapes. We have the next slide. And this is just, you know, don't quote me on this, this is part of a pilot project, not yet studied, uh, but um, what you can see is I've plotted and I've used the language names. Um, Dave's getting excited, he knows, he knows some of these groups. Um, but what you can see, we've got eastern languages and desert languages, the eastern ones are at the bottom. Um, and the first thing that you can see is that the shape of the backed artefacts, don't worry about the axes, they're multivariate. Uh, um, signals, but uh, the shape of the backed artefacts falls out. What it means is that in each place, the people who received this technology um, develop their own style of doing these things. And what's more is that if you go from lower right uh, across to the left, then up and back, that seems to form a chronological pattern. So my, my point is that you know, if we interrogate the archaeological record, we can um, evaluate some of the models we have without contaminating it with the ethnography, and hopefully the uncontaminated archaeological interpretations can come back to help us understand the evolution of the cultural systems that are um, uh, described in that ethnography, without, without us getting into a kind of circular argument of, of, of using the ethnography to describe the archaeology and then using that to explain the ethnography. So I, I'm excited about that. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, I've been listening so intensely, I think I lost track of questions. But I think it's question six, Dave. So um, yep. getting into the juicy stuff. Uh, what are your thoughts on the state of archaeological research in Australia today? Are Indigenous communities generally happy with, the archaeological, with archaeological as a discipline and its research ethics as a whole? Thanks, Rob. Um, in my little time, 30 years in the archaeological discipline, we have come a long way. I'm really have a, a, a proud archaeologist. When we set up the Australian Indigenous Archaeological Association, we brought and made the decision to include it with the um, AAA, that we'd all walk together. Um, if we had issues along the way, but we'd all be there. We wouldn't separate that, and we, we, I think that's important. I'm a proud archaeologist and, and of our discipline. Um, we have come a long way. There's the works of setting up from government policies to you know, the codes of ethics that were sort of semi-relevant at the time, you know, encourage people to work in partnership with Aboriginal communities. I still think that's vitally important. Um, and our communities give that approval. So researchers as a whole are doing great consultation works. I would argue that there is some of the research funding bodies like the ARC 
uh, need to ha identify a few more or have on board an Indigenous eth uh, Research Ethics Committee that actually looks a little deeper in, at some of the eth uh, research ethics uh, issues. The best one in place is the Guideline for Ethical Research by AATSIS, and I think that's something that we're going to be um, challenging the ARC as the Australian Indigenous Archaeologists in the near future, along with a number of our communities. So I think we've got a little way to go, but there always is a way. We've come a long way. I think the, the, the institutional works with communities and the range and nature of the work is, is, is coming a long way, and we've, we've got a bright future. But collaboratively, as long as we don't steer the path separately, then I think we're on track. There has to be ben mutual benefits and a respect that this research is, is on our country and that we are the custodians of that. Um, sorry, what was the second part of that was, um, how do Aboriginal communities feel? Well, we are getting a lot of Indigenous reps to our Archaeological Association meetings. Um, there are partnerships, and this is wonderful. We're now we are on a session for the last six years, just the Australian Indigenous Archaeologists, called Our Works, Our Country, Our Works, Our, our Projects. Just talking about what we're doing. Some of these are small scale, but they're relevant to our communities. Um, and I think the discipline and the col my colleagues in that, you know, have come a long way. I think we're in a, you know, we've got a bright future. Where I feel some of the issues that have come out of the the, the woodwork quick of late is the Indigenous genomic research agenda, often adopted by these, well, stolen human Indigenous samples, such as that, that the ANU, coming out of the woodwork, everyone's kept them quiet. And of course, Western science goes, it's always, from an Indigenous perspective, wants to have the oldest, bestest, newest sort of thing. That's not always irrelevant to, is relevant to Indigenous peoples. Um, and we, if, if these races or to to populise these uh, academic spheres or that are coming through. We want to be part of that, certainly on relation to Indigenous genetic uh, materials. There's been a boom. We had locked the gates from that around the country for Indigenous genetic research because we, well, there weren't ethical frameworks, and I'd argue there's still not. This is the big thing we are going to challenge. So all of a sudden there's a hair that someone's got from the South Australian Museum. There's, there's a big race to find out who's the oldest, where we're actually from. Well, we would argue we have to be there. There needs to be indigenous frameworks that allow us to have a say whether we want you to do this research. ANU, should we be prosecuting you for holding 37,000 human samples that you stole from the hospitals in the 70s and 60s? And you've got a centre of 16 professors wanting to do indigenous research before you've come to us saying you've got the best consultation um, process. So there's things like this where we lost the gates and I say these changes in the academic areas that have for these popular things, mirror government's policies of the day. When you've got a government that's knocking down Aboriginal communities left, right and centre to get into Aboriginal land, institutions get a little bit more um, uh, cheeky in terms of, okay, now let's just go ahead with this. The Indigenous genomic research, you'll watch this space, we're going to be taking legal challenges on those institutions who are, have uh, broken the ranks without our community's approvals and the ARC for approving a number of these projects without our consent. Otherwise, it's, the discipline's going pretty well, and I think on the whole, communities are in control and inviting our archaeologists and researchers in, but there's a few little areas that we need to keep tidying. So, so is evil geneticists? Yeah. Well, well <laughs> no, it's, it's just human nature wanting to, oh, I've, got, I've now found that we're from Siberia, but my argument, our arguments are that if you've got a government like this who wants to get the whole of the northern hub for its northern hub development, one average and get rid of the central northern land councils, having a conversation or not having the frameworks that are a, 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 a body that may use 
that evidence, that scientific evidence, I'm not talking knocking the science, can be used against us. Oh, you're not Aboriginal. You can't have this, uh, um, you can't talk about uh, these sites that are 60,000 years. They're your ancestors of Aboriginal people. In fact, you're from Siberia or, or somewhere else. So, you know, don't come, you're not Indigenous. We, we have to have this discussion before Western science has the right to champion their new dates and their new centres. So, Peter, you are known for your expertise on lithic technology, reconstructing how people made stone tools. Can you tell us what kind of information archaeology can get from studying these objects? That's the first part of the question. And can you give us examples of the most important discoveries you have made and their implica implications for understanding ancient life in Australia? Yes, I can. <laughs> um, do we have the first slide? Yes. Yeah. So I was prepped that this, something like this was coming. So I've got some slides, which is good, because talking about stone artefacts without seeing them is, is a little bit odd. Um, so the first part of the question is, what, what can you do with these things? Uh, well, look, I've got, I've got four answers. And the first thing is, they tell us where humans were. These stone artefacts are nearly indestructible. So the, the bone disappears, the, 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 the food remains disappear, the, the uh, hearth places disappear, but the stone artefacts stay. So the first thing is that the stone artefacts tell us where and when people were. Um, and they do that because they tell us that there's something distinctive. These, these bits of rock have been created by humans. They're not occurring naturally. And I think, uh, I think if you look at these, you, you'd never suspect that that was produced naturally. Uh, they've got a distinctiveness that tells us about human uh, involvement. There's an artifactualness that's very clear. I've shown these two specimens because these are the specimens that created our understanding at the, at the, at the base of uh, the, the, the period of science created our understanding of the antiquity of humans. These are the hand axes that John Frere published in um, uh, the, the turn of the um, uh, 19th century, revealing that, that uh, humans in England or hominids in England uh, had existed in, in pre-diluvial time. So uh, artefacts are really distinctive and they let us chart where people were. And in fact, in many parts of Australia, they are the sole record of Aboriginal occupation, the sole material record. Aboriginals have stories, but when those stories are not there, this is what tells you that people were there and people were everywhere. These artefacts are everywhere across Australia. But one of the problems for the mining companies is, of course, every time you want to run a road development, you know, you know you're going to find half a million of these in, in the desert, even though to a, to a kind of uh, uh, an untrained eye, it just looks vacant of, of, of human uh, contact. Could we have the next point? So the next thing is that uh, when humans, humans somewhere around about, well, not humans, but hominids, our ancestors, somewhere about 3.4 million years ago started to habitually use stone artefacts to process food. And it's, it's one reason we look the way we do. We have relatively small guts. If you look at um, the ancestral species, things like Australopithecines, they have a great big um, uh, 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 flange of rib cage because their, their, their body has to have a great big gut to, um, to have a long intestine to process the food. And it's being able to cut up food and cook food that has an, enabled us biologically to, to reduce the size of that so we don't look like cows. Uh, 
and to, to look, you know, sort of very, very flash. Now, um, the consequence of that, of that kind of habitual use of stone artefacts, because of course we don't have great claws or great fangs, we use these things instead, has been that um, unlike our more distant ancestors, who were only worried about where they could get food and how to avoid getting eaten, our ancestors that began making stone artefacts had to worry about where to find food, how to avoid being eaten and where to find the rocks. So we had to start mapping geology. We had to start doing things that no other animals do. Um, so that would take us into different terrain. Perhaps we'd be, our ancestors would be moving into landscapes that didn't have good food in, but that perhaps were dangerous with predators. But that's where the good rocks were and you needed that. So it changed the, the niche in which we evolved. It changed us and it, there's, there's a kind of old um, style phrasing of you know, man the toolmaker is that we, we became human partly because we, we discovered this. And I think, I think there's an element that we could go back to. Um, so this is an example how in this, this landscape, this is no northern Europe, it's a Neolithic stone quarry in the, in the foreground. But to an untrained eye, it, it all looks the same. But to a human who is familiar with the landscape, who has uh, learnt to diagnose the different geology, uh, you can move across it and, and find the places to explore it. <coughs> the third thing that you can get from the stone artefacts is potentially some indication of function. So stone artefacts in the right conditions can preserve uh, the damage from being used and sometimes the residues, the bits of meat or the bits of plant or the blood cells can be found on the edge. This is a particularly gruesome version of what you'd use one of those hand axes for. Um, so uh, this gives us an insight into the way in which people um, use their tools. And it's, it's uh, I think, very important for us because, I mean, my, my point earlier was that we want to know whether Aboriginal groups in the 19th century were eating different things to Aboriginal groups 20,000 years earlier. Well, how would we do that? We could look at the edges of the tools and find out whether the residues were... Uh, revealing a similar pattern of use or a different pattern of use. Uh, so tool use is the third one and the next one is of course that <coughs> once you make these tools you can co-opt them for signalling, for conveying information. It's like you might buy a car but if you buy a Lamborghini you're sending signals. It's not just for getting around town. So there are lots of theories about things like the early hand axe. The early hand axe as a uh, a mechanism of sexual selection. Uh, the, the idea, well, I'm not necessarily a proponent of this, but the idea is that, that um, <coughs> um, people would select a mate based on how well their hand axes were made. And, and the idea is, you know, um, a, a reference to the fact that the hand axe is telling you something about the ability to acquire skills, the hand-eye coordination, the, the level of strength, the uh, perhaps even the the sort of um, social networking capacity to get um, someone to teach you how to do that. Um, and of course those theories always have the women selecting the men making the hand axe and we've no idea that that is the case. Uh, but I think that the idea that, that the material culture that we use sends signals is a, is a really important one and it's, it underlies my point about the backed artefacts earlier, that they are being used not just to for some function, they're being used to send social signals and their shapes are 
affected by what the society expects. So just like we often say that's not how you make, that's not what a car looks like, this is what a car looks like. Well, the same thing has worked with backed artefacts. So uh, next one. Well, the, so the second part of the question was uh, what kind of interesting things have, have I and perhaps other people done? Well, I'll give you two examples. One is the discovery of early axes in Australia, and this is a really uh, uh, interesting question. The second one will be about backed artefacts. Oh, so, look, 100 years ago, Aboriginal Australia would have been represented as Paleolithic, the old Stone Age with primitive tools, in contrast to the Neolithic that had evolved in Britain and Western Europe, where there were nice ground axes. That was the, the, the kind of bad evolutionary story that was, that was uh, you know, commonly described. Until in 1967, Carmel Shire found axes in Arnhem Land at more than 20,000. Uh, the oldest ones in Europe were about 6,000, so that really upset the apple cart. And ever since then, European archaeologists have been trying to um, explain away Australia as, as being odd. But what, what we do have is a novelty in Australia which precedes the rest of the world. So on the left-hand side is um, uh, an axe fragment. Uh, which Sue O'Connor and I published uh, uh, about three years ago and at that point it was the world's oldest uh, evidence for, for an axe and it was 48,000 years old in Australia. And that was about the time when the earliest evidence for human <coughs> occupation in Australia was thought to be around about 50, maybe 55. So, so axes, ground edge axes, functioning somewhat like the kind of axes that you'd be familiar with, uh, certainly shaped like them, was as old as human occupation. And since then, I mean, I, I made the case um, that, that that meant that axes had been invented almost the moment that, that the Aboriginals of An uh, the ancestors of Aboriginals landed in Australia. So it was a, a novelty. And, and people sort of said, well, it's only one specimen. Well, Chris Clarkson just found some more. Um, he found a site that's 60,000 and in the lowest level, axes. So what we've got uh, a, a form that was, is understood to be an elaborate form and it was, it was represented as, a, as an advanced form, um, although you know, advanced and primitive are not terms we want to, we want to play with. But um, now what we can see is that when people arrived in Australia, they were creative. They arrived in, an, in a, a landscape without any hints of what you should do and, and a landscape with different... Um, resources to exploit and different, different um, uh, constraints upon them, uh, different raw materials, and they invented axes. Uh, these are the earliest axes in the world. So um, the next part of this story is that axes are in northern Australia between 60 and 70,000 years ago, and they don't come to southern Australia until 3,000 years ago. So early on, there were regional identities set up within Australia. It's not like Australia was just everyone doing the one thing. So this is great evidence for the, the emergence of long-standing cultural differentiation within Australia. And, and, that, and that challenges challenges our discipline as to how that works. How do, you, how do you A, get it established that early, and there's no doubt that it was, and then how is it maintained? I might make the point that the boundary of... Um, the, the, the southern uh, non-Pumanyungan is the area that didn't have axes and the 
the, sorry, the non-Pumanyungan in the tropics had the axes and the Pumanyungan in the south didn't have the axes. So, um, in a sense, those recent linguistic dispersions replicate a much older story of, of differentiation. Next one. And the, uh, the other uh, example I would give is, is work that I did with Val Attenborough, who's sitting over here. Uh, thank you, Val. And um, we were looking at these backed artefacts, and we were told, when we, when we were younger, uh, we were told that they were only introduced into Australia about 4,000 years ago from outside Australia by people who arrived with dingoes and technology. So, you know, again, it was one of these stories where Aboriginal people couldn't be creative. They had to be passive receivers of things imported from overseas. Now, uh, the, the sites that Val dug and our view on the, the evidence simply didn't support that. And so this is... No, sorry, sorry, go back. Yep. Uh, the, on the left-hand side, um, you can see that there's a lot of backed artefacts uh, between, say, three and a half and two and a half thousand years ago, but we've also found them going back to 9,000 in the Sydney region. Then they were found back to 13,000 in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Then there's been a paper published last year in the Flinders Ranges where they go back to 24,000. There's a paper being sent to PLOS One very shortly that has them at 43,000. These things have been around a long time. Again, they only appeared in Europe about 30,000 years ago. Um, uh, can we have the next slide? Now, the, the next thing is that people were um, convinced that they were spear points. Um, Val and I worked with a, an amazing useware analyst, uh, a, a residue specialist, Gail Robinson, and we produced uh, this kind of evidence where, where we can show that they're not projectiles and what they're mostly used for are things like um, incising bone and cutting feathers and scraping hides, all sorts of craft tools, probably um, uh, uh, designing a whole lot of paraphernalia, some of which could be, could be ritualised. So the point I would make is that um, the, the work that, that I've been doing with Val and, and other people, you know, we've been not only pushing back the, the dates, but I'm less interested in the dates as the significance of the dates, the implication that it has for the, for the process of technological and social evolution in Australia, the understanding of the way these ancient cultures cultural social systems were working, their establishment of identity, the, the, the regional differentiation and, and the complex technologies that, that uh, they were producing. Fantastic. Thank you. So, Dave, you've been passionately involved in the establishment of the National Indigenous Codes of, e Codes of Ethics relating to archaeological research on Indigenous Australians and their heritage. Can you tell us, uh, tell us about these policies and how they've influenced the discipline? Well, Yes, sure. I mean, in my early career, when I was, had a lot of energy, it was one of the things our elders were at the forefront. This discipline itself was this. It was divided. Those who, oh, God, we don't want to consult with Aboriginal people. This is scary. They're angry. Half went overseas. Um, and others engaged. So we had this... We introduced the Code of Ethics back in 90. Some of my colleagues refused to join the AAA Association because they refused to engage or give up their rights for science for the for to have Indigenous voices in this. Um, however... <laughs> I know I was there um, when we did that in 99. But, you know, others... We had these codes. It influenced for a while. We did things... And I, before that, we, I was involved with the World Archaeological Cong uh, Congress with Hirani Matunga to develop the WAC Code of Ethics for Indigenous people there. 
you know, from indigenous peoples, at least we, and I always argue this, we attempt this moral or human rights high ground to, to, to recognise us as the custodians of our heritage, um, to work in mutual partnerships. I think good archaeology is ethical archaeology, and you can do... Science in the archaeology is wonderful, but you also need to go with people. And I'd argue if you work co um, collaboratively with the communities, there is no end of the amount of research and type of research. It's just mutual partnerships. So we developed all these codes. I wrote the, the consult national consultation for the Ask First guidelines, which are now 20-something years old, a bit outdated, but they were you know, guides to consulting Indigenous peoples. They're there. The, 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 most, the foremost ones that I would recommend to any researcher, be it archaeology, anthropology, or any area looking at doing research in Indigenous peoples, is the guideline for ethical research with Indigenous communities, the Geras Guidelines by IATSIS, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island Studies, which has been consulted. It's our key Indigenous body in Australia, research body, and has had the consultation process. Chrissy Grant ran that, and we did two drafts. It has looked at, I mean, it has a number of factors, things about, is this a mutual partnership, concerns about Indigenous views? And at the end of the day, there is no damage or, or collateral damage done to that community who's being researched. I think in the po politics of today where governments are, we've lost our Indigenous voices from ATSIC, from our, our legal aid uh, to everything else, there is a push to get rid of the Northern Central Land Councils for this Northern Hub development. What I've lamented, I guess, of the issue is, as I, all these policies and things were put in place, at the end of the day, we could never get them as legislation. They're guides. So when, when policies or government approaches towards accessing land and indigenous goes out the door, which it has for some years now, so too do any guides. Um, the academic institution, I, I have no major issues with, and I think we're right. But what I, as a heritage manager, State by state and government policy and legislation to protect Australia's Indigenous heritage is an sh absolute shambles today. And where we were 25 something years ago, we had legislations identifying social values. The Commonwealth Government abolished the Heritage Commission and has had a, a national heritage list that looks like the top 0.001% of sites. There's no overriding of states. WA changed their legislation to basically abolish 30,000 sites by bureaucrats who were in, in the development stage. So these, for me, are the bigger issues that we have to deal with because I argue Australia has an... Well, I argue Australia has an identity crisis, but if we were to embrace, respect and know our rich, ancient, you know, um, heritage of this country, something we can all embrace, that's the tree roots for any national identity. The science of archaeology is actually strengthening our, you know, our, our national identity. I just think we have an obligation and this is, archaeology does provide this and, and through the publications and, 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 and general um, uh, media sort of announcements of our finds and the, what, the uniqueness of it, is that, um, but at the moment, governments are, 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 as John Mulvaney says, dumbing down our heritage legislation so we can mine. So there is a dis disrespect for communities and that is the frustration out there at the moment. So what we're do, engaging on now is some public, more media sort of events, um, filming, documentaries, which I'm about to show, to try to bring on the public, because if governments aren't going to do it, people, we believe, will. And it is something that unites Indigenous peoples, our heritage and culture, and our obligation to our children's future. But it's something that I say we can all share as all Australians and embrace. And I do you know, uh, salute the archaeological discipline in its ethical uh, way it does operate to contributing to, you know, I think, a better Australia and our, our own identification.
So codes of ethics have come, they're still there, and I argue that, but you know, they're in a day when the you know, sites are being destroyed, mining, it, the booms are on, codes of ethics really go out the door, so we've got to try, try something else. Thank you. So Peter, funding for archaeology has always been an issue when it's positioned within the humanities faculties. Um, your position was established by the first and largest endowment to Australian archaeology. Can you tell us about how the endowment is helping develop Australian archaeology? Yeah, I'm happy to finish with that. Can we get the next slide? Yep. So, I'm the Tom Austin Brown Professor of Australian Archaeology, and this is Tom Austin Brown. Uh, so Tom Austin Brown was a character, as you, as you can see. Um, uh, he was a lawyer from Western New South Wales, grew, grew up um, uh, way out west and you know, really loved the, the terrain and he obviously wandered around, I'm sure he collected artefacts at the time, uh, it was the standard thing, but it made him really fascinated by the history of the country and, and the, um, you know, the role that Aboriginal people played in it. Um, but the interesting thing was that, well, not interesting, but uh, uh, he, he was able to retire at 55, um, having made a substantial uh, amount of money from, from being a lawyer for uh, uh, Broken Hill Petroleum. Um, and uh, he then came, so he'd done a law degree at University of Sydney in, during World War II, and uh, when he retired, he came back to the University of Sydney and did an undergraduate degree in archaeology. And he then did a master's degree uh, at Washington State University and then enrolled in a PhD at ANU, which he never submitted. So Tom was an archaeologist uh, and uh, he did um, have a great interest in explaining how uh, the stone artefacts were, were, were patterned. He, he and I had that in common, although we shared different views on it. Uh, and in his estate, he, he left a very significant sum of money to the, to the university, which um, you know, thankfully pays my salary. But not only does that, it, it also provides um, uh, uh, a significant research um, fund uh, that we can use each year. And we use it for several things. We can have the next slide. So the first thing is we use it for training the next generation. That's really critical, training the next generation in everything you've heard tonight, how to operate within Australia, how to do the science, how to do the politics, how to do Australian archaeology. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, it, it is, you know, out, uh, outfitted these labs, it, it provides the, the materials, um, it allows us to take them on field trips. Um, we have a, a, a teaching obligation. Next one. Um, and the next thing it does is it, it funds the, the research. It funds the research by certainly um, adding to the science, buying, buying machines that go bing. Um, you can see my, my famous flake on there. Uh, but also by funding fieldwork. So one of the projects that I have is, is a joint project with the Mythica native title holders at, at Birdsville. And, and Tom Austin Brown has been very supportive of that and we're hoping to get some PhD students out of those sandstone quarries. So uh, undertaking active field research uh, it supports the ARC grant that I've talked about already um, and it's been supporting the, the work by other staff members and, and, and postgraduate students. So this is in addition to the, to the normal generous resources provided by any university, but archaeology is an expensive discipline. So uh, you know, the, the capacity to have 
uh, Tom still supporting us after all these years uh, is very significant. And the final one uh, that I'll mention is that uh, a recent initiative uh, along with Sydney University Press is to establish uh, Tom Austin Brown studies in Australasian archaeology. We have a number of books that have already appeared. We have more books in it uh, coming through. And it's, a, it's an opportunity with a, with a high reputation press to begin to uh, provide a context whereby really um, globally significant studies into the history of, of human life in Australia can be, can be published. Um, uh, a, a dedicated venue for that. It's, it's been, um, I think, a, a great uh, means to encourage research. And one, one of the books that we've got coming through is by some consultant archaeologists from the Pilbara who have been working closely with Aboriginal communities and saying, you know, it is possible to do great archaeology yeah. with the consultation. It's possible to do great archaeology in a consulting context. You have to be pretty cluey about how you do yeah. this, but you can do it. And the book is a, is a nice... Uh, illustration of that. Um, uh, so the Tom Austin Brown Foundation has been very significant and the one thing that Agatha, uh, who, who is running this series, told me to say is that uh, these books are available for sale after the talk. Thank you. Um, so we'll just have a, a reasonably sort of short response from you, Dave, about this one, because then we're going to show a film afterwards, which I have to work out how to do. But Okay, so the question. Uh, can you tell us about some of you, uh, the work you've been doing with communities and um, Aboriginal heritage on country? I've been working with communities forever, and, and one of the things I guess I'll, I'll leave it to show this film. I want to show how archaeology, I argue, is also about relationships. It's about people, living and past. It's relevant to us today, it's relevant to us as our communities, individually as the many of us are, but it's relevant to our wider communities. I think archaeology can bring people together. And one of the things, we've, it's something we've been wanting to work on for ages, and we're doing a lot of it now, is bringing property owners without the local Aboriginal communities. You know, if the original false news things, you know, native title comes in, you're going to lose your land, you've you know, had the Farmers' Federation and mining, oh, these black fellas going to take it all and, you know... So we're trying to bridge this sort of gap because you actually, the reality is people who care for their country, if you've been on the land for five generations or longer or you know, have a connection, you actually you have a value and association to that place, as do the Indigenous people who might have been moved off. But bringing people together, you find that there's more things in common and it's the best way in this period of our time where our heritage legislation isn't the best in protection of our sites, some states are better than others, Bringing farmers on with Aboriginal people, um, as you'll see in this film, is actually enables a, a, a great relationship, respe respect for country, and the farmers are looking after these little patches and valuing it. So it's bringing together. So that's something I'm excited about archaeology, having been on the other side finding mining companies. Things. There is great work, say, some of the projects that the mines do, so I'm not just knocking that. But we still have a long way to go in terms of having an ad a nation that respects its heritage. And the old days with John set up the Heritage Commission and others, it was about a threshold heritage value. We need to have international standards or minimum standards of, of, of identif site identification and it should not be, nor the committees that set up these state regimes, be backed by those who want to destroy it for their own interests. Heritage should be valued on its own uh, international, scientific, other thresholds to meet and to be protected. If we leave it to bureaucrats or a dominated industry, 
um, uh, that dominates the committees, then we don't, and we don't caring for our country, let alone our, our sites. So I'd like to show this one is how, and at the end point of this is that by having these parameters of community in, in being the custodians, the property owners not worried about their property, they're looking after the site, sharing that, but it then opens the door to invite whoever you want in terms of researchers to come on board and do the, you know, the science of that archaeology or the other story side. So I think we're something hoping to use this to encourage, um, you know, community ventures in, in, in identifying and, and looking after heritage. And my final point for sure, we show it for those philanthropists and those heads of departments, there are still no Indigenous archaeologists teaching in any institution in Australia. This has to change. We are here, there's 30 of us on the chair of, of 30 Indigenous archaeologists. We've got our first PhD, we've got an honorary PhD, we've got two coming, Rob's going to... But we're still... There, there are like dinosaurs in our, these Western institutions where we're locked out. And Pete, I invite you to, to encourage with your wonderful funding perhaps to identify and have an Indigenous academic in your department, as I would all in other institutions, but not too much pressure. Um, <laughs> but it's about time, folks. Okay, well, um, we're drawing to the, towards the end of the night. We've had a fantastic um, presentation from two um, pioneering and, and leaders within the discipline of archaeology. Uh, we've got time for a few questions. Um, so uh, we are a bit short on time, so... A question for uh, <coughs> Professor Hiscock. Uh, how will your work be affected by the uh, ov uh, massive overdevelopments on the eastern seaboard? Uh, well, look, I mean, we, you know, we, we prefer to have archaeological sites intact. So, so obviously, um, just like Dave, you know, we're all, we're all concerned uh, about uh, our proper context for development. I, I, I like my luxuries, so I'm not opposed to development, but uh, it's, it's quite critical that if we're going to be able to write the story of humans in Australia, we're going to need to be able to access archaeological sites and to manage them and to conserve at least some of them as, as a proportion for future study because technology is increasing all the time. So uh, I guess the, the archaeological community in general um, uh, is uh, in an interesting position. As many archaeologists work as consultants and therefore their, their, their income stream comes from this development, but at the same time, you know, acting professionally, they're, they're trying to record material in, in a way that gives us the, uh, the information that we need. So, so look, I'm very concerned, and I, I'm very concerned about not just the development, but the amount of um, resources that are given to the investigation. So, you know, as an academic, my normal hobby horse would be to say that in years gone by, the, the records made of sites before they're destroyed uh, may have been acceptable at the times, but, but at this point they, they now provide no information that, that we can use. They're very antiquated kinds of, of records. And so one of the problems is future-proofing the, the archaeological record by, if not conserving it, then recording it in um, really impressive ways. So, I mean, a lot of my current work is about um, capturing 3D models of, of, of these objects. Now, it's possible to do that with a camera. 
you can create a 3D model of, of, of artefacts with a camera, and I don't know why that's not a standard thing before material is disposed of or, or destroyed. Um, now, it comes at a cost. It's much more costly than just counting them. Um, but there are things that, that can be done and, and I think should be done. So I think we're, we're all concerned, if, if that's the, the crux of it. Can I just say, one of the things... I first met Peter in 1990. He was working as a, for the Sacred Sites Authority up in the Northern Territory, I think, 1991. But years later, in about 2004, and I was in the thick of taking on these challenges of, of site protections, I rang Peter, I think 2004. We were dealing with the Sand and Point um, legal cases and some of the assessments of these multitude of artefacts we found were seemed to be a bit lower. And I asked Pete to come on board at that point, which you you did, and went into bat in the court case. And it was great to have his calibre to, you know, raise the significance. We do have these challenges in the consultancy development side, but I mean, I commend Pete. He's been into bat for us as well. So I mean, that's a that's a lovely case if we're getting down to tin tin tacks because I live down that way now. But uh, you know, approval was given for the development of Sandon Point. Um, based on a, a, an exploratory archaeological in investigation. Now, the investigation, uh, as far as it was carried out, was fine, but the, but the uh, inferences were that there weren't many artefacts. Now, when I, when I looked at the area and multiplied what they'd found in a few square metres by the area, it turned out to be about two million artefacts were being destroyed. And this um, is a similar thing across the board, the underrepresentation. Well, the understatement of significance, I see it all the time. Lake Cow, where we've heard in the back for five years, and in the end there was thousands, of, tens of thousands of artefacts, burials, and what you have to go through. And one of the difficulties I found in other areas where we've done up in North Queensland and, um, is that all the mining companies have tied up all the legal companies in their, in their back pockets. So when you go into back, you sort of like something like out of the castle, you get your maverick lawyer and your, the communities don't have the resources. And unfortunately today, Often in many states, the this Commonwealth has sort of abdicated any responsibility to Indigenous heritage full stop. And I argue that's something we need to address. You need to have some minimum national standards. And the state's legislations have declined over the years. And that was what John also, Mulvaney was also strong of, of standing up for and lamenting that we need to respect all our heritage and, and be proud of it. All right, so um, my question pertains to the 3D modelling that you just brought up. And my question is that in terms of cultural heritage, immersive technologies such as augmented reality and virtual reality are increasingly being used as a form of virtual tourism throughout Australia um, as a way to preserve and present Indigenous land and culture to mainstream audiences. Do you think that these new digital technologies and virtual environments have the ability to lead to self-determination and reconciliation, or are they acting to reinforce certain concentrations of power and um, access to kinds of uh, new technology? I'll start and Dave can finish. My, my answer is great technologies, like any other technology, they can be used for any purpose you want. I'm the same. Our communities are really engaging in the digital technology side, as long as you're there as equal partners, there's wonderful scope, and it's certainly the area of archaeology, and today it's very exciting where we can go, and, you know, who knows where we will go in the, in the future. But with... Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe just before you ask the question, state who you're asking to, I guess. <laughs> Please. Um, I'm not really quite sure who I'm asking to. Right, maybe <laughs> probably the question's more for David. But I just first of all want to make a comment about uh, Professor Mulvaney because I'm not an archaeologist but I studied archaeology with him in the early 80s and he was 
when I was studying it with him, he was very aware of the shortcomings of his book and he made quite clear then that, um, you know, you had to be very careful not to confuse contemporary ag Aboriginal culture and the, you know, the ancient cultures and that you couldn't mistake, you shouldn't get them mixed up. And, um, and he was also always very clear about, you know, that um, the field had moved on considerably since he'd written his book. So I think he was very aware of, you know, that things had changed and research had moved on. But um, the thing I'm interested in is what's happening with these, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of work being done with these mining companies having gone into Aboriginal areas. What's happening to these sites that have been excavated? And, you know, without government controls, I mean, what can be done to get those controls in place? And um, um, what's happening to the sites in the meantime? Well, I mean, this is the area I'm still, well, involved and, and lobbying for. I mean, I, have, I was running around for a while saying Australia's got, uh, you know, its, you know, its Indigenous heritage management is in crisis and it really was during that end of that boom. It still is today. WA is just, you know, is WA, what can you say? We've got to go over and bat for our brothers and sisters over there to say, you know, we've got World Heritage Sites uh, that should be World Heritage Sites that are graded up, you know. But the rest, I mean... My, when I was advisor for the Commonwealth Minister on the Indigenous Advisory Committee, we went through seven environment ministers. We said, Tom, we just need... We had, we had it in place with the Borough Charter identifying the range of values. We had minimum standards. And what was looked at heritage had a minimum threshold it made and then it was seen as nationally significant. Then no economic or other uh, value that would say should take away from that value, that value, and that site should be merited protection. That's, that's a minimum standard, and it's used in other countries. It's recognised by UNESCO, which we've signed up to with the Borough Charter, but it's all gone out the, the, the door, and um, the committees that set up for New South Wales, where they've been re-looking at this legislation, New South Wales Aboriginal Heritage, for the last 10 years. It's going through another draft, which ultimately the Minister signs off. But they've got Farmers' Federation, the mining industry, and then there's two Indigenous reps from a land council. Like, how are you going to even, before you even assess from by an professional heritage assessor's background what should be the, the, the policy, you're, you're already down the, the creek in terms of those who are objecting to it for economic means. And, you know, that's not good heritage. Um, to Peter mostly. Uh, you were mentioned a few things about, like, uh, this sort of uniqueness in some areas with technologies found. Is assumed homogeneity a bigger issue in uh, Australian archaeology right now, or do you think it's like moving in a direction where we're moving away from these sort of fallacies? Um, look, I, I think it's still an issue. Um, there are very long-standing conceptual frameworks in, in place that. Um, lead people to describe continental-wide phenomena and uniformity over time. And, uh, you know, the generation before us, pe people like John and Rhys Jones and others, were trying to make sense of what they saw by employing those frameworks. Now, they're, they're now quite counterproductive. They, they present an image where everywhere is much the same as the other. And you can imagine in the heritage context, that's problematic. If they're all the same, you know, you can lose someone. It's not a problem. So the, the kind of, you know, the distinctive qualities and the information content um, 
has, has, is not widely recognised. And the point that Val and I have, have, have been making now for, for 20 years is that you've got to actually start setting up different conceptual systems. So you've got to be you know, analysing assemblages and regional patterns independently and uh, I'm, not, I'm not a great fan of induction, but you need to work from the ground up and establish uh, commonalities rather than just, just assume them. And, and the fundamental problem is that the, the kind of, from, from my point of view, and I'm, I, I'm admittedly harsh about this because it's a serious issue for me, is the, 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 um, the failure of archaeologists, just like the failure of non-archaeologists to read the archaeological record, to read it in detail and to understand the information that it contains. If you just describe them all as stone artefacts, uh, you know you can just dismiss them easily, uh, and and you need to uh, you know have the the kind of the, the approach whereby you know you're allowing each of them to be read on their own qualities, um, to address questions that they can address, and not to push them to address questions that it's unreasonable for them to be uh, the the, ba the basis of a discussion about. Uh, so you've got to know, you've, you've got to explore the, the, limit, the inferential limitations, you've got to um, build uh, an understanding of the human past in Australia from foundations, rather than you know, starting high up and just forcing everything into the pigeonholes that you've constructed. And, and we've done that for a very, for a very long time. Uh, we have gone over time, but we just have time for one last question. Um, this is about the um, Western um, history that's being demolished as well as the Aboriginal history that's just being ignored, like the Eastern Creek, South Creek, Bungarabi Creek in Western Sydney. They're building a huge zoo there. There's not enough room for it, but they're building it anyway next to housing everywhere around it. Um, and they're just doing it not consulting anyone because the state government approved it. The council didn't have anything to say about it. Lake community didn't have anything to say about it, and they just did it. I would think Pete and I would concur. This is where, you know, I think we do need to get the community on board to be more aware of the issues. I love the, the opportunity and thank Sydney Uni to have this discussion on different sort of perspectives, but um, heritage should be a value. It's our cultural identity, I'd argue, for the range of reasons importance to different people. We do need to have this discussion as a community, and I argue if governments are failing, and I think I would argue they are dramatically, that getting an, a, an audience with our communities, sharing what we know, bring it out, and so that community can own those values and share with it and stand up. Um, we're certainly doing that from an Indigenous angle now, um, but it's something I feel and proud of that this, our discipline can do together. And I think we actually have more in common in where we want to go to. But we need to bring a community with us to engage in governments that have views that perhaps don't, economics are over, you know, people and, and people's values. Thank you. Um, so two very different uh, experiences in, in archaeology, but I think a nice message to take out of it is the, um, the same uh, wishes, I guess, that um, you both have for, for the preservation and for, for research and for archaeology in Australia. Um, it's nice, these were two of my uh, first teachers. Peter taught me in first year at ANU and um, Dave took me out of my first dig, so it's, um, it's great to see them here on stage doing this together. And um, I just want to thank Sydney Ideas, of course, the university for um, hosting and 
Dr. James Flexner for putting on this fantastic night and getting these speakers here. And, and just join me again in thanking our presenters. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.